All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Go ahead and find a seat when you have a chance here. So good to see everybody today. I feel like it's been much more than two weeks since we've all been together. Um, just how busy the the Thanksgiving week is and everything. I am excited for Christmas. We're going to be doing some cool stuff on this coming Sunday as we start kind of our Advent season at Southside. So just get excited for that because um, we're going to be doing some cool uh, some cool talks on different uh, Christmas aspects of Christmas and things that we're looking at there. And then also we're going to be doing the traditional lighting of the Advent candles. And then Andy's got some really cool songs picked out. And each week as we get closer to Christmas, there will be more actual Christmas songs in the service. So if it's not totally Christmas song heavy this weekend, then just know that coming weekends it'll be getting more and more. But I'm super excited. I think it's going to be a great time to celebrate the birth of Christ, celebrate his coming to us. And I think Hopefully that there will be a lot of visitors there who can hear some of these things for the first time. So um, at the end, let's just pray for that in general. But I just wanted to get that in your, in your ears because um, it's just going to be an exciting time for us. So let's go ahead and pray and we will get started with uh, 1 Samuel 10. Father God, we um, just pause and remember that you're here with us. We uh, ask as we open your scriptures that you would... Um, Help them to make sense to us, God. We ask that you would apply them to our lives this morning. And God, we ask as we look at kind of a strange passage today, God, that you would help us find things in there that um, aren't even on my lesson plan, God, things that um, might surprise us and might challenge us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, as I just said, it is kind of a strange passage today. So there's, there's a lot of interesting things that happen here. It's kind of, I'm, we're just doing the full chapter 10, even though we probably could do six weeks on chapter 10. I won't allow it because there's just, we got to get, we got to keep moving through this book, but there's a lot of really strange and really interesting and also some really cool stuff in here as well. So let's go ahead and jump in uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, we would be in 1 Samuel for, uh, for about 10 years if we did it at that pace, yeah. All right, um, let's start in verse 1, chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, that's Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be, a, shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will, be, will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give to you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the, the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these things meet you, do what your hand finds you or finds to do, for God is with you. 
Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So kind of a long little first section there. But all of this, and the title that I have there is Samuel's Strict Instructions, because all of this that we've looked at is what Samuel is saying is the sign to uh, Saul, that this anointing of God for him to be the new king of Israel is real, that it's authentic. These are the things that will happen to him that Samuel is predicting so that he knows that this is from God. And there's a lot of stuff going on in here, and a lot of them are so very specific, which is very different from oftentimes the things that happen in Scripture. These are so specific. He's mentioning the number of men and the number of loaves and all of these different things. So let's jump in and, uh, and take this a little bit at a time. First, it says, Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, on Saul's head, and kissed him. And he said, has not Yahweh appointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Yahweh, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So he anoints him with oil. And anointing with oil was unique in the Old Testament as a right of kingship. You didn't anoint people with oil just for anything. And once we get to the New Testament, you see that anointing with oil has become something that is done in the church. So in James, he says, if anyone is sick, let him come before the elders and be anointed with oil so that the elders can pray with can pray for him. And so um, by the New Testament time, it's kind of broadened. But back in the Old Testament, anointing with oil is unique for a king. You only anoint a king with oil. And in some places, this is even called holy oil or sacred oil. In fact, some of the interesting things I've been watching on, on Netflix, I don't know if you guys have Netflix, but The Crown on Netflix. So if you go to kind of the first season where, where Elizabeth is going through her coronation, a lot of the liturgy of the coronation is stuff that's pulled right from the Old Testament. So you'll see they sing the song uh, about uh, Nathan the priest and Zadok, the, or Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet. And then um, there's also the moment where they anoint the queen with oil. And they say, um, I anoint thee with holy oil. And they say it holy oil because they're English. But... Um, but it's all taken from the Old Testament. Sometimes this anointing oil that was used for kings and for queens, I guess for queen, only one in the Old Testament, but um, this anointing oil that was used was called holy oil or sacred oil. And that means that it's set apart, that it's for that particular purpose of anointing the king. There are four aspects in the anointing formulation in the Old Testament. So whenever a king or a queen is being anointed in the Old Testament, the anointer is a prophet or a priest, and sometimes both, like here. So Samuel is both priest and prophet, and that's in his function that he's performing. Um, The second thing is that there's a public anointing that's always followed or typically followed by a private anointing. So this verse that we're looking at here is the private anointing and the public one's going to come in a few verses when we get toward the end of the chapter today. And then the third aspect is um, that the title conferred upon the the person being anointed is ruler or prince. And we talked about this last week that, that the title for the king of Israel is not actually king. That the, the God, when he speaks of his king, he calls him a prince or a ruler. And the Hebrew word is nagid, which is different from the word melech, which is the word for king. And so human beings, the, the Israelite people, look to their king and they call him king. But God is ultimately the king. 
And he looks at that king and calls him the ruler or the prince, the one who rules in his place. And then finally, the oil is usually poured either from a flask or a horn. And in this case, you see that Samuel takes out a flask of oil and pours it on his head and kisses him. And so that's kind of the the Old Testament formulation for the anointing of a leader of a king. Any questions? Ray, you you had a hand up? Yeah, I uh, I didn't know what the what it was made up of. Yeah, you can if you go to Israel today, you can buy anointing oil, but it's pretty much the same as the oil you get here. I imagine you you could probably make it yourself because Ray's got the recipe there. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't know the proportions. That's right. So you might get it all mixed up. Yeah, it might be more of a rub if you put too much spice in there than an oil. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Did I see another hand? Okay, let's keep going. Um, So then uh, Samuel says, this shall be the sign to you that Yahweh has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So he's telling him basically, Saul, if you want to believe that this is from God, then I'm going to give you these signs that are going to happen to you so that you know that this is true, that this is authentic. He authenticates the anointing. Um, And this, this is what he says. When you depart from me today... You'll meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Just a little note there. You'll see at the end in your notes after what shall I do about my son, there's like three sets of parentheses, and that's because in the Old Testament, they're really fond of saying like, then Samuel said, and he's talking, and Samuel says that someone else said, and then that person said, and you just have kind of a Russian nest doll of quotation marks going on there. In English, we're a lot more particular about those things, not so much in Hebrew, I guess. But um, So the first sign from Samuel is that Saul is going to meet two men at this place called Zelza, and they're going to tell him that the donkeys that he set out in the first place, so that was the, originally the thing that brought him to Samuel in the first place, that he's out looking for his father's lost donkeys. And, and uh, the first sign is that he's going to meet these two um, these two men by Rachel's tomb are going to tell him that the donkeys have been found. Now, we aren't totally sure about the location of Zelza. We know that, um, that currently, as he's standing there talking to Samuel, he's in Ramah, which is around this area. We don't have the exact location of Ramah. Um, and we also know that, um, that Gibeath Elohim is right over here on the border And so he's moving this direction, and so Zelza is probably somewhere in between those two points. Anyway, Rachel's tomb is a landmark that's mentioned there. We also don't know where that is, but we know it's near Zelza, which we don't know where that is either, and that's going to happen a lot in this passage. There's a lot of place names that we just have really no clue where they are. We can guess, and we can get kind of, and this is actually a pretty small geographical space, and so it's somewhere in here, um, but we just haven't found any archaeological evidence of a specific civilization, or we have different small little civilizations and we can't connect them uh, cohesively to place names that are mentioned in the scriptures. It happens a lot. Um, But Rachel's tomb refers to Rachel, the wife of Jacob. So way back in Genesis, um, Jacob marries Rachel, and uh, she is is the mother of the patriarchs of three of the tribes of Israel. Now, she had two sons in Genesis. Anybody remember the names of those two sons, Rachel's two sons? 
They were um, Jacob's favorite sons, Joseph and, and Benjamin. Yeah. And then Joseph has two sons. Anybody extra credit here? Anybody guess the names of Joseph's two sons? Exactly, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so they become two individual tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so therefore, uh, Rachel becomes the matriarch of three of the tribes of Israel. And they're three of the biggest and three of the most successful tribes as well. So Rachel's tomb, which is mentioned way back in Genesis, is an important national landmark for the Jewish people. And so when Samuel mentions that it's going to be near this place, he would have known exactly where this was going to happen. So he goes on. Then, after all of that, you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. So here's Samuel's second sign. Saul will meet three men who are on their way to Bethel. So it's not that he's in Bethel. Remember, he's traveling between Ramah and Gibeath Elohim, this direction. And so he's going to cross paths with these three men headed up to Bethel. And Bethel is significant because there's a high place there. There's a place of worship there. And so the three men going up to worship are taking with them these, these articles that are mentioned, uh, three young goats, the three loaves of bread, and the skin of wine are all things that would be used in um, a sacrifice. So they're headed up to sacrifice, and on the way, they're going to run into Saul, who's the anointed king, and they don't know that necessarily, but they're going to offer some of their sacrifice to Yahweh, to Yahweh's anointed king. So this is part of the fulfillment of the sign that he truly is anointed for this purpose. Uh, The Oak of Tabor... We don't know where that is, but we know it's probably near Tabor. But here's the problem. The Tabor that we know about is off the map. It's up this direction. And so it's not, he's not near there. Otherwise, he's going on a really roundabout trip to get from point A to point B. So this is some other Tabor, uh, some other oak and some other Tabor, and we just don't know where it is. But the point is that Samuel's making it very clear and very tangible for Saul where and when and how all of these signs are going to happen. Um, So keep that in mind. And then notice just other details about the specificity of this sign, that Samuel tells him how many men there are going to be. He tells him what each man will be carrying, and then he even gives gives this note that they're going to have three loaves of bread, but they're going to give him two loaves of bread. So he's so very specific. It's almost like he's saying, like, you're going to meet a man who is, you know, seven feet tall, and he has, you know, he's wearing this kind of clothing, and he will walk up to you, and he'll say that it's, like, very specific. In other words, there's no way that Samuel could miss these things happening, that when this, or that Saul could miss these things happening, that when they happen to him, he knows for sure that this is a fulfillment. He couldn't say, well, that could have just been coincidence, or is that really what Samuel was talking about? No, he gives him stringent, strict instructions. Then he says, after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And so look again at the map here. This, this little red dot is um, our guess for where Gibeath Elohim is. And it's right, as you can see, on the border between Benjamin and the Philistine territory. So there's a garrison of the Philistines. This is the front line in the war against the Philistines. Um, anybody know what the name Gibeath Elohim means? Anybody recognize maybe one of the words in that? Yeah, Elohim means God. So Gibeath Elohim means the hill of God. 
Um, and so maybe it is a, uh, the name of an actual like civilization there. He could just be saying, you know, you're going to come to the hill of God as if it's like a, maybe there's a high place. And actually we know there is a high place from the context here. So maybe he's just referring to that, that there's some known high place near this garrison of the Philistines. Um, and so Samuel notes there's the Philistine forces there. And the, the, close, the uh, closest by place that we know in that area is called Geba. Write that up here, G-E-B-A, um, which is corresponds to this dot right here. Um, so it's this it, pretty much the same as. Oh, that's odd. I want, yeah, maybe it's all frozen up. Let me see if I can go backward. Okay, one second. <laughs> Okay, I just unplugged it, and I'm plugging it back in. I think it just got all frozen up. There we go. Okay. So, yeah, that's all right. I'll add the dots back in. So, Rama over here, where he's coming from, Gibeath Elohim, or by its name, ancient name, Giba, G-E-B-A, is that red dot there on the border. Yes, Bob. Yeah, it's pretty small. It's pretty small because you've got to remember even, you know, Israel itself is a pretty small, you know, nation. Um, and, uh, and so it's, you can, I mean, driving, you can get from uh, Joppa to Jerusalem in a couple hours, you know, um, you know, with traffic and all that. So it's, and I tell you that because we've done it, you know, a few of us. Um, it's very close by. And so this is not a very large distance, though he's walking, you know, so it, does add a little bit of time. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty small relative distance there. So, um, yeah. As I remember from the Israel trip, from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is five or six miles. Yeah, yeah. Scale. Right. Yeah, Beth, that's, a, that's a very good, yeah, scale there. Is that it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, if you think about it in our terms, it's saying that uh, Jesus is born in Bethlehem is like he's born in Cheney. You know, it's this small town, and you're like, can anything good come out of Cheney? You know, so there you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's the Bible, not me, okay? Um, all right, so where were we? The um, Okay, yes, yeah, so Gibeath Elohim, or Giba, not to be confused with Gibeah, which is going to come up in a moment here, so we've got a lot of place name confusion going on, um, but there's a garrison of the Philistines there, and, uh, and what's interesting here is, remember back in chapter 7, there's this big battle between uh, where Samuel leads the repentant people of God, they've come back to him, he leads them in battle against the Philistines, and he pushes them all the way back here, so enough time has passed between chapter 7 and now chapter 10 that the Philistines have regained their territory all the way up back to where they were before. So it's just a little interesting note in there, um, and also that this is happening in the midst of God's people insisting upon their own way while God is trying to direct them a different way. Um, he goes on, and there, so when you come to Geba, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. So here's the third and the final sign. Saul is going to meet a group of prophets in Geba. They're going to be coming down from the high place, which is a place of worship at the top of a mountain. Um, and they're going to be playing music and prophesying. There's something really interesting historically that's going on here. 
the group of prophets here refers to a prophetic movement in the Old Testament that began early in the monarchy period. So this is very beginnings of when this would have happened. But the group, the movement, was called the Sons of the Prophets. They were referred to as the Sons of the Prophets. And you'll see them mentioned all throughout First and Second Samuel and all throughout First and Second Kings. And basically what they are are these little bands of prophets, usually between 50 to 100 prophets, and they would typically gather and live near different shrines or high places, as in this case, uh, different locations that had particular religious significance. And interesting note here is that the word for prophesying in this verse, that they're coming down with the, with the harp and the, or the harp, the tambourine, the flute and the lyre, the word for prophesying is a different word that's used than the word that's used to talk about Samuel's prophecy. Uh, so the word is, this word here is more closely associated with like ecstatic utterances or praises or oracles, things that we might uh, talk about like speaking in tongues today or in the New Testament. It's the same kind of thing that's going on in the Old Testament among these, this group, the sons of the prophets. And so it's not as much about predictions of the future. It's not as much about revelations of the will of God, like Samuel's kind of prophecy. This is much more of a spiritual, ecstatic kind of thing. And the sons of the prophets, they come up a lot in First and Second Kings when the movement reaches its peak. But what's really interesting about this movement is that it's rising in Israel right at the same time as the monarchy is rising and at the same time as the priesthood is becoming less and less about true spiritual devotion and more and more about sort of formal religious um, adherence to, to protocols. And so this is a counterbalance that it seems, we don't have a lot that's mentioned about these people that actually tells us about who they are and where they came from. They're just kind of inserted into the, into the text here um, because the people who were reading this originally would have known exactly who they're talking about. But it's interesting that it seems like God allows this movement to rise as a counterbalance to the formality of spirituality that's represented by the kings and the priests. And so you see more and more of these sons of the prophets will rise up. In fact, a prophet in 2 Samuel is pretty important named Nathan is from one of these bands as well. And so you have these bands of prophets, the sons of the prophets that rise up at this time. Any questions on that? Because I know it's a little bit of an unfamiliar thing, but it's very interesting because that helps us get a little context of where are all these prophets coming from? I thought we were in, you know, the, at the end of the period of the judges when there is no prophetic witness. Well, it's a different kind of prophecy that's going on there. Yeah, Ray, and then Teresa. Sons of the prophets is what they're called. Yeah, why? Oh, yeah, no, they're, ju- they're, they're just called the sons of the prophets. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. Teresa? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a strange and impressive, in a sense, kind of display. Yeah. Okay, so then uh, Saul is going to see them coming toward him and, and doing these ecstatic utterances and playing their instruments, and then he's going to join in with them as part of the sign. And then, finally, he says, the spirit of Yahweh will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So he meets them, he joins in with them, 
And then also, he says, Samuel says that he will be turned into another man. This is a really interesting formulation, and what it refers to is the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Notice a few things here. In the Old Testament, God gave his spirit to specific individuals for specific tasks. So it's not like now where the spirit is given to everyone who has Uh, who declares faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who is united to Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit and indwelling within them. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to specific people for a specific time for specific tasks. And so that's the way that the Spirit was, was conferred and indwelled people in the Old Testament. And an interesting thing here also is that for Saul, his ecstatic prophecies here are evidence of the Spirit. This doesn't mean that we should necessarily expect things like this to happen to us today, but there is some evidence that when the Spirit indwells you, there's some thing that happens in your life that demonstrates that indwelling. And so for us as Christians, we believe that at the very least, that evidence is resultant in life change. So when we say we're a center for life change, that's what we're talking about. The evidence of the indwelling of the spirit that comes as we're united to Jesus Christ through faith and as we become the beneficiaries of the salvation that he won for us in his death and resurrection. And so part of the spirit's indwelling is that Saul is transformed into a whole new person and that does square with what we believe about the Holy Spirit. In the, in the age of the church here today. And so, very interesting that that is inserted in there. That as the spirit of Yahweh rushes upon him, he's turned into a new person. And also, there's this evidence, this moment that happens that demonstrates that something is changing about him. Any questions on that? I have to be careful building theology on these unfamiliar passages. And so, the the best we can do is to square those up with what the New Testament and other parts of the Bible teach about these things, which is why we can say that, of course, we know as the Spirit indwells us, we are changed into new people, and it's an interesting way that that's stated here in this passage. But yeah, any questions? All right. So, after all these signs are mentioned, he says, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. In other words, once these things have happened, sit tight, await further instruction. Um, And note here, uh, this is a common theme in the Bible. When God calls someone to do a formidable task, he promises his presence in the working out of that task. We see that with Abraham. We see it with Moses. We see it with so many different characters in the Bible. We see it with Gideon. We see it with, you know, so many different ones. Even Mary in the New Testament, that when God says, I'm calling you to this thing that's going to be difficult, he says, I am with you. I will be with you. And then even to note that the name of Jesus, the prophetic name of Jesus is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And so that message of God's presence with us is meant to be I think one of the most encouraging things in the scriptures is that we can do anything if we realize that we, are, that we have one with us who is capable of anything. And, so, and that's who our God is. And then he says, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to, offer, down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So this is really strange that this is inserted into Samuel's, you know, Uh, discussion here. 
because this has to do with something that's going to happen quite a bit later in the text. Not until verse 13 are we going to see the fulfillment of what Samuel's talking about here. Why does he bring it up here? Here's a possibility. (laughs) Saul's conduct in chapter 13, when he does not wait for Samuel to come, when he waits the seven days, Samuel's not there, and then he takes matters into his own hands, that is the beginning of the end for for Saul. It's the beginning of the end of his reign. It's kind of the first sign that he truly is going to be a king like the nations and not a king after Yahweh's own heart. Um, So it's almost like right here, the biblical author is reminding us that Saul's reign from the very start is doomed to fail, that he's going to head off in his own direction. He's going to be disobedient to God's prophet and Samuel. All right, any questions on that section before we press onward here? Onward ho. Onward ho. All right, let's look at the next section starting in verse 9, Saul's return home. So when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell them anything. Also, some strange things going on in this section of the passage. I told you there was going to be some weird stuff going on. So first of all, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. Uh, God gave him another heart there is, um, is not to be over-spiritualized here because it's actually a Hebrew idiom. To be given another heart, for God to give you another heart, basically means God changed your mind. God changed your attitude even. So what's interesting here is that Saul, it seems like what's being said is that Saul feels ready because of Samuel's strict instructions, the prophecies saying all of these, these stringent things that are going to happen. He feels ready to step into this anointing that God has put upon him. He's changed his mind. He's emboldened him um, and so that he can walk uh, with courage into what God is doing there. It says, when they came to Gibeah, Behold, a group of prophets met him, met Saul, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So remember, Gibeah here is Gibeath Elohim, or Geba in Benjamin. It's not Gibeah, the hometown of Saul, which is, you know, confusing for multiple reasons, because they all sound very similar. But uh, exactly as Samuel told him, Saul meets this band of the sons of the prophets, and he joins with them in their ecstatic prophesying. And then it says, when all who knew him, who knew Saul previously, saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Which that statement we'll get to in a second. Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? So people notice Saul, they know who Saul is, and they're surprised to see that this guy 
who they knew, you know, just from a few days ago, is now there with the prophets prophesying. Um, they haven't seen him do anything like this before. And so the question, is Saul also among the prophets here, means does Saul belong to this band of the sons of the prophets? So it's not saying, is Saul necessarily a prophet like Samuel, or is he appointed to be in the office of prophet? But he's, they're saying, does Saul belong to this strange band of ecstatic prophets? And so they're asking, like, I can't believe this guy that I know has actually fallen in with these weirdos too, is kind of the thing that they're, that they're talking about here. And then the other weird thing is the question by that one guy, and who is their father? That just seems like a random inserted thing. But that kind of refers back to this this group of the sons of the prophets. So in each of those groups, they're called the sons of the prophets because they had a father who was the head of that band, who was kind of the, you know, the um, Rajneesh, you know, he was the head of all of them. He was the great prophet. He was the the big cheese. And so the... uh, the question that he's asking there is basically who's responsible for these people? Who's their leader? Who's, who is Saul fallen in with here? Um, and uh, all of this gives rise to this new saying in Israel. And this is something that's going to come up throughout the books of First and Second Samuel is, is this, there a saying that arises in Israel. And so this kind of this, um, these new uh, little like turns of phrase, little catchphrases that come up. And this is the first one, which is, is Saul also among the prophets? So that's, you know, as if to say that that's something that would come up in normal conversation. They're talking about King Saul. Well, is Saul also among the prophets or something like that? Um, And interesting here is to remember Samuel. So remember Samuel. He's lost his role as judge over Israel because it's been given to Saul, Against his will, he's had to appoint and anoint this successor to his responsibility as leader of the people of Israel. And now, the people are also talking about Saul as prophet. Is Saul also a prophet? So you have to wonder, how would that new saying in Israel have fallen on the ears of Samuel, the true prophet of God? The point of this whole episode, again, is to authenticate Yahweh's choice of Uh, of Saul by Samuel. It says, when he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And so that means after he meets up with the sons of the prophets and passing, he joins them to prophesy, and then he goes up the mountain to the high place to worship at Gibeath Elohim. And then we find out that apparently Saul's uncle is there with him because it was not mentioned. It just says that he says to him. So Saul's uncle, having seen all of this, probably, being bewildered at his nephew's behavior and conduct, comes up to his nephew and he sa- it says, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And so now Saul's uncle is going, oh, so something must have happened with Samuel. And so he says, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Saul had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So this was not part of the prophecy from Samuel. But after all the signs have been concluded, Saul's uncle, watching all this strange behavior, wants to know what happened with the prophet, what happened with Samuel to change you in such a way that now you've fallen in with these these ecstatic prophets and you've joined ranks with them. And Saul's answer is a partial truth. He tells him, that the donkeys, that Samuel told him the donkeys had been found, which is true, Samuel told him that, but he leaves out the much bigger news, which is that he's been anointed as the new king of Israel. 
Why? Why doesn't Saul tell his uncle he's been anointed? We don't know. I suspect that in keeping with the rest of the story, it's because Saul is hesitant to accept this role, that Saul is kind of a a reticent king in a sense, and we're going to see some more evidence for that in a moment, but ultimately we don't really know why, and there are a a few different answers as to why he could have been hesitant to share that information. Any questions before we move on here? Yes, Kathy. Saul is, he's the anointed king, and he's not a prophet. He, he, yeah. No, it's much different because Saul is king, now owns everything. So it's much more like being, you know, the dictator of North Korea. You know, he's, he is, he is all powerful. No one can tell him otherwise, except for, I guess, Samuel, because he speaks for God, you know. And so he, that's why, partially why God warns the people of Israel through Samuel that if you appoint a king, it may not work out well for you because the king, because, you know, this is the old saying in our country that absolute power corrupts absolutely. That is what happens to Saul. It's somewhat what happens to David. It's certainly what happens to Solomon and then all the kings that come from that line later on is that they get this power and even with the best intentions, they fail to live up to the high uh, expectations of their office from God. So, yeah. Other questions on this section? All right, this next one's the really interesting one here. So, starting in verse 17, Now Samuel called all the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. So, very strange. (laughs) The king hiding among the baggage. (laughs) Why is he hiding? We'll get there in a moment. Um, So first, Samuel calls together the people... Uh, called the people together to Yahweh at Mitzpah. So Mitzpah on this map is Mitzpech. Don't know why there's a K there instead of an H, um, but there you go. So (laughs) Samuel calls for this national assembly. He has all the tribes of Israel come together at Mitzpah. This isn't the first time he's done this. Last time in chapter 7, he did so so they could have a national day of repentance And it was prior to this great battle against the Philistines that we already mentioned where they pushed them way back, all the way back to the plain against the sea there. Um, But this time, Samuel's calling them together for something less like a national day of repentance and something more like a national day of rebellion. 
because he's bringing them together to anoint this premature king. And that's the first reminder that he gives them, right? So he says, to the people of Israel, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I brought, you, I brought up Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. And so Samuel, speaking for Yahweh now, he begins this national assembly. The invocation is a reminder from God about all the good that he's done to his people in the past. He reminds them of, uh, of uh, God's faithfulness to Israel, that Yahweh liberated his people from Egypt. He preserved them up to now against their enemies. Then he says, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and by your thousands. So now, in contrast with Yahweh's faithfulness, he brings up Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel has rejected Yahweh as their king, despite all the evidence he's given them that they will come to regret it, and all the evidence that he's given them that he will protect and care for them if they pledge themselves to his sovereignty. And so he says, but since you're perpetuating this, since you're persisting in this, then come close and we're going to anoint the king now. Um, So it's really, can you imagine the kind of assembly that this would have been? That on the one hand, the people are all very excited because they're anointing the king, but then, you know, the old prophet Samuel gets up there, you know, mean old prophet Samuel and reminds them, God is not happy with you. You come together for this great celebration, but God is not pleased with this thing that you're doing against him. Very mixed feelings going on there. You just wonder what it would have felt like to be in that group, to be getting what you wanted, but to be reminded that God didn't want that for you. Very strange. So then it says, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So here, Samuel's using the practice of casting lots to show Yahweh's choice of Saul. Samuel already knew that Saul was the chosen king, but he brings all the tribes near and he, and he uses the lot, and we'll talk about what that is in a moment, but he uses that to authenticate for the people of Israel without even telling them Saul is the anointed king, now we're going to prove it by taking it by lot. He just kind of plays along. And the whole idea here is to protect the sanctity of God's choice. That nobody could say this was just Samuel's choice. This was who he wanted to have as king. So he doesn't even tell anybody who it is. Saul doesn't tell anybody that he's been anointed. And instead, they use this tool, the lot, to be able to to determine who that is. So what is the lot? Well, there are two lots that are (laughs) in the scriptures, and they are these things over here. Um, They're called the Urim and the Thummim. So Urim is the, uh, um, the black one here, and it's, uh, r- the word literally means curses. And Thummim is the white one, and it means perfections. And these are two things. Um, I don't actually think they were shaped like this, but this was just kind of the, the best picture I could find. I think they were actually flattened discs, not like marbles like that. Um, but they were kept in the breastplate of the high priest. So he had a little compartment in the side where he kept one urim and one thumim, right? And he kept them in there. And these were used, actually God told the people of Israel that they could use these things, the lot, the urim and thumim, to determine God's will. 
that God would direct the way that these were cast when they were thrown on the ground to answer for them a yes or no question. Now, this is something that God did in the Old Testament that he's clearly not doing today because we don't have a high priest who has a Urim and Thummim in his you know, breastplate. Instead, we have a high priest in Jesus Christ. And the scriptures say, in him, all the promises of God find their yes. And so we don't need yes or no answers from the cast lots. But this was something that the people of Israel, in their unique situation, were given by God in order to determine the answer to yes or no questions. Here's the other thing, and then I'll get your question, Kathy. The lots were typically used to figure out who did something wrong. So actually, this last Sunday at church, if you were there for church and you heard the sermon, Dave talked about Achan in the Old Testament. And Achan's sin, where he stole from uh, the, the, the rubble, he stole from the, the place that they had destroyed, which God had told him not to, they found out who did it by casting lots. That was typically the use of casting lots, was to find out who are we going to punish. And so when the lots come out, it's actually a good idea to do what Saul did, which is go and hide. You don't want to be found. Um, and that's actually exactly what happened to Achan, is that they're casting lots, they narrow it down to the tribe, to the clan, to the person, and then they can't find Achan because he's hiding, and then they go find him, and it doesn't go as well for him as it goes for Saul, but that was a different situation. So the lots are used to determine God's will. God, it's not a, it's not a thing of chance. It's not that God said, if you don't know what to do, just pull these out and roll the dice and then I'll be fine with whatever you decide to do. What he's saying is that Yahweh directs the lot. Yahweh is the one who makes it happen the way that it happens. He lets the dice fall the way they do in this case because he's helping guide his people through this means that he established for them in his law. Okay, Kathy, your question. Oh, um, they were precious stones, and I can't remember which were, which was which, but they were white and black. No, they would have been, yeah, like a flattened disc, kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and that, and like I said, those aren't necessarily a good depiction of them. I just couldn't find a good image that wasn't like a souvenir from an Israel gift shop. But yeah. It's just the color of the, of the stone that they were made out of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Teresa? It's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. We don't know. We don't know what the protocol was like. There have been a lot of different scholars who have attempted to recreate what it looked like to cast the lots. And by the way, the lots that are cast in the New Testament are a different thing. Those are a game of chance that the soldiers are playing for the clothing of Jesus. The word lot here refers to umim and thumim, which is a specific thing that's going on there. And so what do we know about them? We know that they were used to answer yes or no questions. We know that it determined in the way that they fell on the ground when the high priest basically rolled the dice and told him the answer. We don't know what they said on them. We don't know, you know, which direction, uh, how he determined what it was saying. And also we know that there was more than one of each of them because 
Urim and Thummim are plural words. And so there's more than one of those. So that's all we really know. How exactly he read that oracle, we have no idea. Yeah, which is interesting. Oh, it wasn't written in Yeah, exactly. No, he, so he just had Umim in one side and Thurim in the other. Yeah, yeah. No, I must have misspoke, but yeah. What is it? Oh. Oh, good. <laughs> That's great. All right. Any more questions about Umim and Thumim, this strange arcana of... Of Old Testament uh, theology, yeah. That would have taken a long time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically the procedure: is that he has all twelve tribes there, and it's a yes or no question. So he he would assume, assuming he starts with the oldest one, he goes to Reuben, and he says, "Okay, is it Reuben?" And cast the dice. Okay, no. And then it goes to the next one. Is it this tribe? Is it this tribe? Because Benjamin is the youngest tribe. So he goes 12 times all the way down to Benjamin and then finally he gets a yes. Okay, it's Benjamin. Then he goes through all the different clans of Benjamin, which there could have been hundreds of them. And we know from other contexts, from other places in scripture, that Saul's clan is the least of the clans. So he's going through all the clans of Benjamin until he gets to the Matrites, which is his clan, and it it happens to be that clan that he gets a yes. Then Saul is the youngest son of Kish. So he goes through all the sons of Kish, gets to Saul, gets a yes, and then they can't find him. So it's really a pretty comical thing that's going on here. You've got to imagine that all the people are like eager anticipation and then they probably lose interest and then they get a yes and they're pulled right back in and then they lose interest and then there's a yes. Then finally they know the identity of the person and he's not anywhere to be found. So it's really pretty comical what's going on here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Samuel's following this thing, knowing that it's going to take him till the very last answer for each thing to get the right uh, roll of the dice. Yeah. Kathy. Mm-hmm. I have not, but I would say that's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's Right, and also it's not directed by God. That's a game of chance. I mean, ultimately the answer is God's will, but it's different in the sense that God's not answering your question in those ways because God hasn't told us to seek him in that way in this moment. Yeah. That's just a game. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, So it says, when they sought him, he couldn't be found. So they inquired again of Yahweh. They're like, okay, Saul's not here. So is there someone else to come? And Yahweh says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So then they ran there and took him from there. So he goes through all the tribes. He goes through all the clans. He goes through all the sons. He gets to Saul. Saul can't be found. 
And then this time, uh, Samuel, his prophet, doesn't use the, the lot because he asks him a specific question. He says, oh God, is there another man to come? And the implication there is that because Saul is the youngest of Kish's sons, are they supposed to now ask whether the, Kish is going to have another son? And is that going to be the king of Israel? And so that's kind of the implication there. But Yahweh's answer back to him is, no, it's Saul. He's just hiding with the bags. So you have to go find him. Um, And then they literally charge at Saul. That's what it means when they ran and took him from there. They charge at him. They basically pick him up and carry him back to Samuel uh, so that he can be anointed as king. And then it says, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And remember, from two Two weeks ago, this means that Saul is a head taller than anyone else. It doesn't mean that he, you know, the length from his shoulder to the top of his head was higher than anybody's height. It means that he was a head taller than anyone else. And so his physical stature here is the first thing that the people notice about him. Any questions about that section? Yes. Oh, I don't know. All we know is he was a head taller than everybody else. Yeah. Which probably actually means that he was shorter than a lot of us because people weren't very tall back then. (laughs) Yeah. They weren't very tall back then. Yeah. They were not very tall back then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, look at the last section here then. Long live the king in verses 24 to 27. It says, Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts, had, hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. <laughs> so Samuel says to the people, do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And remember, this is the context of Saul's impressive stature. Basically, he's like, get a load of the king that you guys have. He's huge. He's impressive. He's a specimen of a man. Um, So Yahweh gives the people a king like the nations, just like they asked for. Someone who they could look at and say, wow, isn't he beautiful? Isn't he tall? Isn't he muscular? You know, this is the king that they had asked for. This is not the king that that they needed, which is King David, who is anointed as a child, Right, much later on, as the youngest son, as the scrawny one. Um, but he is the king like the nations. And then all the people shouted, long live the king. Back to kind of the, the UK stuff, the you know, Great Britain stuff. That survives to this day also. And that's right here, from right here in the scriptures, where long live the king comes from. We hear that all the time. And it's actually part of the uh, royal protocol in a lot of countries is that they say, long live the king. And there is, what, what's really going on there is not only a well wish for the sovereign, so not just, oh, I hope, it, I hope you live a long time, like you know, the current queen of England has lived a long time, so maybe it works, but, um, but it's not just the cry to live a long time, but it's actually a wish for national stability. That as long as you have one person in power, you get to avoid a transition of power, which you know, the, the modern peaceful transition of power is actually a pretty new innovation in the history of the world. That typically, and especially throughout Israel's history, a transition of power usually means a coup. 
usually means that, that either the king has died and now we don't know if his son is going to rule well or someone has taken over and has pulled power away from that king to themselves and usually that means that there's been bloodshed and there's been a lot of difficulty in the land, a lot of upheaval. And so long live the king really means may we have peace, may, we, may this king ensure for us by his long life that we're going to have stability in our country and in our, among our people. Uh, then he says, uh, Samuel told the, the people the rights and duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before Yahweh. So you remember the charter of kingship in Deuteronomy we looked at a few weeks ago? It says, in Deuteronomy 17, when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So do you notice what's different about that charter and what actually happens here? Yeah. Saul was supposed to write out the duties of kingship. He was supposed to write out the law. But Samuel does it for him. Very interesting detail. And again, it just kind of stands as a, as a harbinger of things to come. That Saul is not going to be the man after Yahweh's heart that they needed as a king in Israel at that time. Instead, he's going to be a king like the nations. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. No, but let's wait till we get there, okay? We're coming up on that. Um, so Samuel performs this task that Saul's supposed to perform. He records the law of God in the book that Samuel, or that Saul himself was supposed to do. Yeah. right in here in Deuteronomy 17. <laughs> that that's, that was the commandment. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. No, so yeah, so Moses giving, speaking in Deuteronomy gives this command to say, when the time comes that you appoint a king, this is what he's supposed to do. And then it's very interesting that Samuel, the prophet, does this instead of the king. Yeah. All right, then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So this seems kind of anticlimactic, right? You get to the end of the story, and everybody goes home. And notice here that Samuel is still calling the shots, that he anoints the king, and then then he's the one who says, okay, everybody go home. You know, it's like, here's your mighty king, everyone. Long live the king. Okay, now listen up, because here's what we're going to do next. And he's still in charge. He's still calling the shots. And even Saul, the king, just goes home, right? He just goes back to Gibeah, except that he's accompanied by these other um, people who who are called men of valor, who desired to go with him because God touched their hearts. And so this is the formation of the beginnings of the formation of Saul's royal court, 
that he's going to have men of valor, like the mighty men of David who surround him to support him, to be uh, attendant to him, to fight with him in battle. And then co- uh, contrasted with that are the worthless fellows. So it says, some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, <laughs> but he held his peace. And so uh, right here at the end of the story, there's a note about naysayers in the crowd. And so the interesting thing here, worthless fellows, this is the second time we've seen this phrase in, um, in the book of 1 Samuel. And literally in Hebrew, it means sons of Belial which again means sons of worthlessness. And so this is a common title that the author of First and Second Samuel uses to talk about people who are contrary to the will of God. So notice something really interesting that's happening here. Here's, here's the way that this story breaks down. That God's people say to God, we want a king. God says, no, you don't want a king. They say, yes, we do want a king. And he says, fine, have it your way. Have the king. Right before the coronation, he reminds them that this is not his will, that he doesn't want them to have a king. But he's declaring that they will have a king because they've persisted in this. Then the king is anointed and coronated. Now there is a king. And now the people who are contrary to the will of God are the people who don't want a king. So before, the people way back over here who said, we don't want a king are the people who are in line with God's will. Now that God has made his pronouncement and that he's moved and that something has changed, now those same people are contrary to God's will because they're not following God. They're stuck in their own ways. There's a lesson in there, right? (laughs) That we can get so in our own sort of principles and our own sort of view of the world that we don't take the time to follow God God in what he's doing, to walk in his footsteps, to determine what's right and wrong in a given situation. Instead, we get isolated and we determine what's right for ourselves instead of following God to see the way that he guides us throughout history and throughout our own lives. So very interesting there. But that's what worthless fellows means, that they're these sons of worthlessness. They're contrary to God's will. And then also at the very end here, Saul lets it go. Saul sees this. They didn't bring him tribute. They didn't bring him a present. Um, But he doesn't do anything about it. He held his peace. Now, um, he didn't have to do that. (laughs) He's the king, right? He's the dictator now. He has all the power. He could have said off with their heads. But he doesn't, you know? He holds his peace. And so here again, we see the personality of Samuel and especially his relative timidity early on in his reign and early on as a character. Saul, yeah, his early... Uh, timidity. All right, any questions on that section before we look at this Bible reading principle here? Yeah, John. Yeah. A long time. <laughs> Generations. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And even, so the other thing though is that so I believe when we look, and there's really, there's, this is never said explicitly, but if you look at kind of the storyline and the context here, I believe that they only had to wait one generation to get the actual king that God desired, who I believe was David. That I think he wanted to set up David as the first king, and yet the people were impatient. So I think that really the desire for a king, for a king was not wrong, but it was a desire for a king like the nations, and it was, and it, it was a desire for a king right now right? Not Yahweh's king, but our own king in our timing for the kind of things that we want him to do, you know? Yeah. In Deuteronomy? 
A, a lot of them, you'd think, because they're raised as children in the ways of, of the Torah, you know, the original, um, the law of God. So, yeah, you'd think that a lot of them would know. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, so let's look at a Bible reading principle here that I think is pretty interesting. That's that we find color, find personality in the details of the scriptures. Um, so notice some subtle hints about Saul's personality in uh, this passage. I've kind of pulled them out in your notes and then also on the, the screen here. It says, this shall be a sign to you, a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. And then when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Saul had spoken, he did not tell him anything. And behold, he, Saul, has hidden himself among the baggage. And then some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but Saul held his peace. Some interesting details here. Nowhere is it stated explicitly in this passage, or really anywhere else up to now, but by the preponderance of evidence in this passage, all the different details about Saul, we can see this note of timidity and reluctance in Saul to accept the position and the anointing that God has prepared for him. Um, you can just run all through all of those. He needs a sign. He needs multiple signs. God gives him several very specific signs to authenticate his choice of, um, of Saul. God gave him another heart, which again is that idiom referring to God changed his mind, which implies that before that time, he had his mind going in a different direction, that he didn't want to be king. In fact, if you think back to last week, or to, I guess two weeks ago to the passage we looked at, where the very first moment where Samuel says, you've been anointed, you've been chosen to be king over Israel, he says, how could I be king over Israel? I'm the youngest of my father's sons, and from the least of the tribes, or the smallest, or the least of the clans, or the smallest tribe of Israel. So he, even in that moment, didn't have confidence in, him, in his own self. Uh, when his uncle asks him, he doesn't tell him anything. He hides himself among the baggage because he doesn't want to be brought out before the people. And then finally, when people uh, come against him, he holds his peace. He doesn't assert the rights of kingship, which maybe is him showing restraint, but in line with everything else seems to be that he's uh, reluctant to step into the shoes that God has laid out in front of him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so the principle here is that we can find certain color, certain personality in the details of Scripture. And the, the caution here is don't get too carried away, right? Don't look for all these things under rocks and all of that and actually rest on the things that were told specifically about people when you're trying to come up with who these kind of people were. But that being said, Noticing these subtle clues can enrich your reading of Scripture, your understanding of it. They can help you see more and more kind of the depth of the character of Saul so that instead of just being this human prop who's moved from one place to the next, you can kind of think about what was he thinking and what was he feeling as he went through these things. And that makes the application of the Scriptures much more vivid for us 
because it helps us relate more and more with the people that these narratives are happening to in the scriptures. Any questions on that? Yeah, Jean. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely is possible. And I think that um, as we move forward in the text, one of the interesting character studies you can do of Saul is that he seems to put his trust in Samuel. Is that Samuel for him is not only the prophet of God, but he's kind of the, um, he's kind of God to Saul, right? That he is always watching Samuel and he's always looking to Samuel. And much later on after Samuel's dead, he's going to seek out a witch who can, you know, conjure up Samuel's spirit so that Saul can ask him a question. He's so reliant on this guy and it's probably because he doesn't have a relationship with Yahweh of his own. So, very good insight there, yeah. Other questions or thoughts? All right, let's look at the life application that I have there, which is that God won't be stood up. So, God chose Saul as his king for this season, even though Saul clearly felt apprehensive about this appointment, God doesn't let him off the hook. And he never lets anyone off the hook, if you look at the scriptures. You will not find a time where God says, I have chosen you for this, and they say, no, thank you. And God says, okay, I'll find someone else. That's fine. You know, oh, all right, I guess, I guess you caught me. You know, it's like God doesn't do that. When he makes up his mind, when he chooses you for something, you will be his vehicle for that thing. And so the choice is whether you'll do it faithfully and joyfully or whether you'll drag your feet into it and do a bad job, which is, seems to be what happens to Saul here. But look at some examples from Scripture. Moses. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Gideon said, uh, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and then even Christ in the garden says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so there's the, the very marked difference between everyone else and Jesus Christ, is that Jesus says, if there's any other way, then let that be the way, but your will be done. But I will step into this thing. And so that is the the definite difference between the the attitude of others and then the the obedience, the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And so it's natural to be fearful of God's call to big moments of obedience. That when you feel God calling you to something that you don't want to do, it's actually okay to feel like you don't want to do it. And in fact, it's, it, because Jesus does this, we can pretty assuredly say that it's okay to even express to God, God, I don't want to do this thing that I feel you're calling me to do. But what we don't have the option to do is to then say, so I'm not going to do it. Instead, we say, but I trust in you. Your will be done. Help me, God, to step forward in obedience. And so God chooses who he desires. His mind will not be changed, so we step dutifully into obedience knowing that he is with us all the while. And I think that that is the key promise of Scripture when God calls us to big moments of obedience is that he promises to be with us in those moments of obedience. And in fact, even as we've been studying Philippians, it says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even our obedience is not our obedience but God working that obedience in us 
to himself as we yield. Amen. Yeah. All right. Any, any last thoughts or questions before we go to our time of prayer here? I told you it was a weird passage. Well, good. <laughs> it's a strange one. Next week, we get, we're back to war next week with the, this time, not with the Philistines, but with the Ammonites. So the other enemy on the other side, Israel's fighting a two-front war. So it's uh, going to get interesting going on from here. And next week will be our last um, meeting for the year. So we will meet next week and we will have a potluck. See, I made this slide. I was in a meeting with Jim, don't tell him, but in, you know, I was making a slide with turkeys and pretzels and stuff. And he'd say, what do you think, Con? Uh, yes, I think so, Jim. Yep, whatever you say. Um, that's what he gets for not being here today. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, potluck next week, and that'll be our last one for the year. And then we will be back. Let me check the calendar so you guys can write this down. Um, typically, it would be the 9th. I am saying let's start the 16th because I will be in Portland for my classes the, on the 9th that week. So let's start the 16th. That way I can be here for the first week back. This. We'll be back on Thursday, January 16th. Next week is our last one. Not this week. Next week we'll have the potluck. Then we'll see you again on January 16th. Any questions about the schedule and the plan for that? Yes. Let's make it a potluck day because it's a long January and we need a little potluck right in the middle of it. That's what I think. Yeah. So we'll do that and I'll make sure we get that on the calendar too so you guys can always check there for the best information. So Monique keeps me up to date. So make sure that we're, <laughs> that we're on there.